Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything from food, lifestyle, and medicine to nature, culture, and politics. There's no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine, and I am thrilled to be introducing you to Dr. Bela Cheda today. She is a double board certified physician in internal medicine and infectious disease through a fellowship at USC, University of California. She spent 11 years in conventional practice serving California patients, inpatient and outpatient with infectious disease care, and became increasingly aware of the growing number of patients with unexplained symptoms, which led her to expand her horizons into myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME, and channel her energies to help these patients that were commonly misdiagnosed and not getting better. In 2015, she began to specialize in seeing patients with CFS-ME in association with the Open Medicine Institute. And in 2017, Dr. Cheda and Dr. David Kaufman jointly opened the Center for Complex Diseases to focus on patients suffering from ME-CFS, dysautonomia, autoimmune disease, chronic infections, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth syndromes, and mast cell activation syndrome. She is a member of the ME-CFS Collaborative Research Center at Stanford University Genome Technology Center. And in addition, she is on the panel of the U.S. ME-CFS Clinician Coalition and has helped write the published diagnosis and management guidelines for CFS-ME. Further, she is an active participant in several national clinician networks that focus on ME-CFS, MCAS, and autoimmune disease. Dr. Chato, welcome. We're so pleased to have you. Thank you, Jillian. I am so thrilled and happy to be here. Okay, so I am just like, you know, twiddling my fingers here, so excited to dive into this very, very meaty topic. I've been thinking about recording with you for a number of weeks now. We've talked about our topics and the world of infectious disease, you know, here in 2021, post-COVID pandemic, or I should say in the tail end of the COVID pandemic, talking about infectious disease is a super hot topic. And we know that long COVID is the sequelae of this post-viral infection. And we know that Lyme disease and Epstein-Barr can also have post-viral sequelae. So let's just start kind of with the umbrella and talk about the practice of infectious disease. What is the practice of infectious disease looking like these days and how is it evolving or not? So the bulk of what ID specialists do is we treat a combination of many different types of patients. So we treat hospital-acquired infections a lot. This is a very common complication from a patient who ends up in the hospital for a few weeks for any reason, maybe in the ICU, and then they get secondary or what we call nosocomial infections. This can be multiple drug-resistant bacterial or fungal infections, and ID docs are very knowledgeable in treating these. Other types of patients that we'll see are patients who are immunocompromised, let's say post-chemotherapy, They get opportunistic pathogen infections. We see a lot of prosthetic and foreign body implant infections. The bulk of the time the clinical ID physician spends is in the hospital setting. So ID physicians will spend very small amount of times in clinic as an outpatient. And we see some chronic infections, but it's pretty limited. For example, let's say hepatitis B, hepatitis C, there's some HIV, some follow-up for hospital discharge patients. Once in a while, we'll see some travel-related diseases. And of course, as in current times or other epidemic or pandemic settings, ID specialists are greatly involved in inpatient settings, outpatient settings, infection control, setting guidelines, et cetera. Now, where there's a real gap in infectious disease physicians' clinical expertise is in chronic persistent infections such as Lyme and Bartonella. And we'll go in it in a little bit more depth um, a little bit later, but I do have some thoughts of why that might be the case. But For currently in ID, when we're presented with a case of acute Lyme or acute Bartonella, and if it's proven by testing, most physicians will treat them for two to six weeks of antibiotics, maybe occasionally longer, maybe occasionally shorter, depending on their presentation. Mm -hmm. But after the course of the antibiotics, these patients are considered to be post-infectious. There is so much research to show that there is persistence of these pathogens in a subset of patients, and there's a huge gap in the approach of treatments of patients with chronic persistent infections. And this usually falls out of the realm of what most ID docs do. So why is that? So that kind of leads us, you know, our gateway into the next topic, which I wanted to talk about is the testing. Mm -hmm. So our current testing for chronic persistent infections is very limited. 
So we're great at testing for acute infections. So when a patient is initially infected, most of the time the patient is teeming with bacteria or viruses, and we can do cultures, PCRs, and our technology is really good for that. And so the bulk of these type of infections we're able to prove. So let's say, for example, an E. coli sepsis. With infections like Lyme and Bartonella, often what happens is in the initial acute phase, the patients are missed. Now, there's various reasons. Often they will present with very nonspecific viral type symptoms. Rashes may come, but they may not look typical. Patient may be completely asymptomatic. So that initial acute phase testing timeframe where PCRs could be very helpful, patients often won't present. Or even if they do present, often they won't get tested because the symptoms they come with are so nonspecific. So once the pathogen is done with an acute phase and it leaves the skin, and the blood compartment, they go into tissues, they're deep in tissues, and they form biofilms. And so at this time, if we try to do a PCR, we're not going to find the pathogen because they're not in the compartment that we're looking at. So we're looking at the blood, or maybe the CSF, we're lucky, but the pathogens are really deep in tissues. So CSF being cerebrospinal fluid. So sometimes you can find say like Lyme organisms or Bartonella in the cerebrospinal fluid, which you would access through a lumbar puncture. Is that right? Yes. And so that can be very helpful, especially if we find the patient early on. Um, It can be helpful even in the subacute and chronic setting, but definitely the the yield of of finding a positive PCR in the cerebrospinal fluid decreases with time as the patient is more subacute or chronic. Can you talk a little bit about PCR? What is that and what part of the organism are you finding when you check a PCR? So PCR is polymerase chain reaction, and it amplifies the RNA or DNA of a bacteria and virus many, many multitude of times. And so it gives you the ability to find the bacteria or virus in a very small amount. And that's very useful for pathogens that you cannot culture. So Lyme and Bartonella are extremely difficult to culture. And that has been part of the reason why it's been so difficult to diagnose is because uh, You cannot culture it, so you cannot find it. And PCRs are relatively new technologies compared to what, you know, cultures have been much, much older in terms of technology. Like what Louis Pasteur did in the late 1800s with his... Exactly. Cultures... Petri dishes. With all Petri dishes. And so culture is basically where you're growing the bacteria or the virus and you're allowing it to multiply. And that growth is what you're looking at. Well, PCR is simply finding the DNA or RNA and it's amplifying it. So you're not actually having to grow the bacteria. And so for Lyme and Bartonella, it's very difficult to culture. And Galaxy actually has a relatively new culture medium that's you know, much better technology. It's very enriched. And then from that culture, then they amplify it with the ePCR. But even then, it's very limited. Bartonella has so many different subspecies. And depending on the Bartonella subspecies, how long you hold the culture, what temperatures you hold at, can definitely affect your ability to be able to find the pathogen. So currently, the bulk of our testing for chronic persistent infection is based upon our immune system response to the pathogen. Mm. So in specific, most testing is based on detecting antibody response to the pathogen. And now that's tricky in and of itself. These pathogens are immune evasive. So when the pathogen feels threatened by the immune system or antibodies that are lurking around, they stop expressing some of the antigens. And so the antibodies that you do form, they can periodically go away. So depending on when you test the patient within the realm of the disease, depending on what the pathogen is doing, the same patient can test positive and negative on antibodies at different points in time. And then the pathogens themselves also have an ability to destroy certain parts of our immune system. And so we do know that we get IgG subclass deficiencies in patients who are infected with these organisms. This is a very tricky situation when you're trying to prove an infection. So we have to understand that our testing is very limited for chronic persistent infections. And there's a reason why we get such inconsistent results. And so stated simply, laboratory results can support the diagnoses, but it can't in isolation make or rule out the diagnoses of Lyme or Bartonella type of diseases. So to use an analogy of kind of what's understood in conventional medicine, 
when you have a, say, a urinary tract or even or even a better example would be like a kidney infection, we can kind of test your urine, we can find E. coli, and then we can check a blood sample that looks at what we commonly call a CBC or complete blood count. And we can see that the white blood cell count is elevated. So when we find the, the E. coli in, your, in the urine, we're finding the actual organism. And when we look at the elevated white blood cell count and we see elevated neutrophils in a differential, we can see the immune system's response to that presence of an E. coli, right? So we're looking for the bug and the reaction. And it sounds like in Lyme and Bartonella, these chronic persistent infections, that because they're in different compartments that are more difficult to check, like in tissues or inside of cells, and um, maybe we can talk a little bit about that, like intercellular infection, um, it can be harder to find them. So you can't just pee them out necessarily. And it sounds like because they mess with the immune system, and because we're looking at more of the adaptive immune system, like the immunoglobulin classes, the B cells, or even the T cells, then we're getting into much trickier territory about the relationship between the organism and the immune system, which isn't as cut and dry as an acute, simple urinary tract infection. Is that right? That is right. And the inflammatory responses that we can measure in terms of that a patient's inflamed, and then there are markers where we will see that the patient does have chronic inflammation going on, but none of the chronic inflammatory markers are specific to Lyme or to what is triggering it. So we can tell that the patient is inflamed and that they're ill, but it doesn't help point towards what the organism is or what is triggering that inflammation, uh, period. What are the typical inflammatory markers that you might consider looking at in a patient that you suspect Lyme or mold toxicity? So I can sort of go over the immune panels that I order, but there are more um, mm -hmm. that are out there, but I don't necessarily check all of those. But I do check for all four antibodies and their subclasses, IgA, M, G, and E. And uh, very often you'll find IgG subclass deficiencies and whether the patient was born with it or it's a secondary complication from the, a pathogenic infection. Uh, but also very often we'll find low IgMs and low IgAs and, you know, that ends up uh, with the diagnosis of common variable immune deficiency for a patient. I will check lymphocyte subset classes, which goes over your CD4s, your CD8s, CD19s, and also your CD4, CD8 ratios. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of practitioners out there also check CD57s. I don't personally um, check that uh, often. Sometimes I will, but that mm -hmm. is another useful marker mm -hmm. uh, in these type of infections. I have started using the cytokine panel from Quest, and I'm finding that a lot mm -hmm. of the interleukins are abnormal, some are low and some are extremely high. Uh, in patients, I haven't got a feel of whether it's going to clinically help me figure out where the inflammation is coming from. Mm -hmm. And TGF beta and C4A are also, you know, occasionally I'll check those and they can be very elevated. I don't think that most of these markers help us point towards what is triggering the inflammation? Because many different triggers can create a very similar inflammatory response. But, you know, those are the typical common inflammatory markers I check. And then I also check VEGF pretty often, which is vascular endothelial growth factor. And um, occasionally I will find that elevated. And I have found that sometimes it will correlate to active Bartonella infection when mm. the VEGF is high. All of those are the immune response of the body. And we know that if, if there's an organism that's messing with us, um, we may end up developing autoimmune activity in the body, like the whole immune system can kind of get wrapped up in a tizzy. Is that right? That is true. And so, you know, autoimmunity triggered by these infections, there can be, you know, lots of mechanisms that can lead to autoimmunity. Uh, often, it can be that the bacteria uh, it pokes holes in the cells and very old uh, antigens that should never have been exposed. Well, I don't know if mm -hmm. antigen is the right word, but basically mitochondrial shock proteins that the body, the immune system has never really seen. And these mitochondrial shock mm -hmm. proteins are actually derived from bacteria, you know, eons ago. Um, and so if the immune system starts to see mitochondrial shock proteins, it will form antibodies against it. And that can lead to autoimmunity. Uh, in some subset of patients. Mm. Uh, also, there's molecular mimicry with a lot of these bacteria. It looks just like 
our body. And so there's auto, and I have seen autoimmunity develop as part and parcel of these type of infections. And often if the infection is successfully treated, the autoimmunity can reverse. So that's kind of the immune system side. When we look at the testing side for the organisms, can you talk a little bit about ELISA testing versus Western blot versus Igenix versus Galaxy? Sure. So there's uh, currently the bulk of uh, testing that we rely upon is uh, based on antibody response. And so first, if we were just to look at antibody response, and if we talk about Lyme, what I'll sort of concentrate on first is there's ELISA, Western blot, and immunoblot. And so ELISA detects total antibodies to Borrelia burgdorferi. Western blot, you take the antigens, you separate it by size, you transfer it onto a membrane strip. And then if there's an antibody, it's going to react to that antigen and the band will change color. Mm-hmm. ELISA and Western blot are both, they use reagents that come, they tend to come from lice, Borrelia, burgdorferi cultures. And therefore, depending on the culture conditions, some antigens can get over or underexpressed. And this in turn can affect the, the test results. Immunoblots are newer and they use recombinant proteins to detect specific antibodies. And because they use recombinant proteins, they have higher sensitivity and specificity. And I use the Igenix immunoblots a lot. I believe that they're, the reagents that they use for their immunoblots are very high quality. And then there's newer tests that are currently in the market that are based on the T-cell response to the bacteria. And they're technically a better test because T-cell activation is supposed to be uh, suggestive of ongoing active inflammation that is currently being triggered by the pathogen. Who makes those T-cell tests? So these tests are relatively new. Infecto Lab is one of the labs that does it in in the United States. And I'm still trying to figure out how useful they are in the clinical context. Um, there's uh, some other labs that use, you know, antibody testing. There's, you know, Igenix, Vibrant America, and so forth. And then there's a few labs out there that also are using or are trying to develop tests or already have tests that are based on antigen detection in the urine. Uh, because technically, you could concentrate your antigen the most in the urine because you excrete it from your tissues, your blood, etc. And then it's going to go into your urine and you can concentrate it and find it. And there are a few labs that are currently offering that testing, you know, it's difficult to interpret in terms of is it overly sensitive? And are we picking up uh, antigens of bacteria that are not triggering inflammation? But there's definitely some real excitement in terms of what the testing will be available in a few years from now, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, So most of the testing currently is based upon antibody response. And so there's some criterias and it's, you know, it's a huge controversy. And so there's the CDC criteria. It's really old. It was developed in the 90s when far less was known about Lyme. I mean, since then, we know so much more. There's been hundreds of studies, if not thousands. And the CDC criteria was developed for surveillance. And so um, for any test, you can set a test cutoff for either a higher sensitivity or a higher specificity, depending on the goal of the test. And an amazing test would be 100% sensitive and 100% specific, which usually, you know, no test is going to be that great, or it's really rare. And so when CDC was setting its criteria, because they were setting it for surveillance, what they did was they set it to a much higher specificity, but that came at the cost of a lower sensitivity. So currently, the CDC recommends a two-tier testing process. The first test is an ELISA. If, you are, if the patient's seropositive or indeterminate on the ELISA, then you perform a Western blot. However, if the first test is negative, then the CDC says don't do Western blots. Um, and according to CDC guidelines, a patient must test positive on ELISA or indeterminate and positive on Western blot in order to be diagnosed with Lyme disease. This is great, again, for surveillance. The first tier ELISA is at best, about 70 to 75% sensitive. You know, that's really on the high end. And that's for the Borrelia burgdorferi SS strain B31 alone. We have many other Borrelia strains in circulation. And so that leaves a significant portion of patients with false negative results who never get the second test. And so given the limitations and specificity and sensitivity of ELISA and the Western blot that we discussed, 
it's easy to see how the current two-tier testing is insufficient. And these were criteria for surveillance. They should not be used for diagnosis of Lyme disease in the clinical setting. So ILADS, which is International Lyme Associated Diseases, has a different set of criteria, and they've chosen a different number of antigen bands and which bands and in which numbers do they need to be positive to interpret a test as positive. And so basically, my approach is to interpret the test results within the context of the patient's clinical history. And that's important in assessing the likelihood that a positive test represents the presence of the disease and that a negative test represents the absence of the disease. Okay, so let's back up one second, just talk about Lyme overall. Like what is included? What organisms and what diseases are kind of included when someone says, I've got Lyme disease or under the umbrella of Lyme disease? What does that include? Yeah, so, you know, when we think about, I commonly will say vector-borne diseases Mm -hmm. uh, because I like to include different types of vectors, which, uh, you know, primarily we're talking about ticks and fleas, but depending on, you know, where in the world someone's been exposed, there are definitely other vectors that can expose you to these type of infections. And I try to uh, think of them as a little bit similar in the sense that these are very hardy pathogens that are very persistent. They've, they're evolutionary, re really smart. They tend to persist and they form biofilms. And so um, often I will say that you know, maybe it's not so important that we really figure out exactly which infection it is because the treatment approach is going to have to cover many of these and our ability to detect and make sure that it's, you know, Lyme versus Babesia versus Bartonella might be a little bit more limited. And so Lyme, in my mind, is Borrelia. And then I usually will always check for co-infections because Babesia it comes from ticks and uh, there's lots of Babesia species. We only check antibodies for two Babesia species because that's all we have currently commercially available, Microti and Duncani. But it, the Babesia fish test from my genus is extremely helpful. So the fish is fluorescent in C2 hybridization. Essentially, it, it shows fluorescence if you have the Babesia in your, in your blood. But one of the great things about that test is that it's not species specific, so it'll pick up all Babesia. Mm. And it shows active Babesia in your system. And trying to figure out whether someone has Babesia or not is very important because the treatment is a little bit different. It does involve using some antiparasitic drugs and antibiotics alone will not target Babesia. So it's important to know someone has Babesia. And then checking for Ehrlichia, Anaplasma, and then Bartonella, maybe just the antibodies through a lab or also checking cultures through Galaxy and ePCRs. Bartonella and Lyme are a little bit similar in, in terms of how they will look on test results. So it's often if you see just a few antibodies on Lyme, but not enough to maybe make a full positive diagnosis or convince yourself that it is Lyme, it could be that they have Bartonella and because they're only showing up a few bands on the Lyme, it could be that they're actually suffering from Bartonella. And part of this testing this whole big panel, you know, maybe you won't individually approach treating each thing, but it does build a case. If, if somebody shows antibodies against Ehrlichia and Babesia and Bartonella, well, they probably did have a tick bite because now you're showing three different antibodies versus you get a test result where it's only, you know, only Ehrlichia, one low level antibodies or just a few bands to Lyme. Well, then you start to question, you know, what's going on here, but it builds a case the more you see. And in terms of approaching the treatment, um, you know, whether there's a co-infection or not, outside of Babesia, most of the other antibiotics that we're going to use is going to target a lot of these different infections together. And you do want to use regimens that will be broad enough uh, that they have good intracellular and tissue levels and can target most of these pathogens recognizing that the testing alone is not going to let us know for sure whether there is a co-infection there or not. Can you talk about the course of Lyme a little bit? Like, you know, what we classically think of an infectious disease is somebody gets a tick bite, they see the tick on them, they get a bullseye rash, they go to the, see their 
doctor who gives them, you know, three weeks of doxy, 14 to 21 days of doxycycline, and then they're treated. But that's not always the case of the patients that we see with complex chronic disease. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's not exactly the how Lyme will behave in different subsets of patients, um, or Bartonella for that matter. I don't think we have a really great clear understanding. But with animal studies, we know that these bacteria can persist for really long periods of time. And so in my mind, I, I think that they're actually, that they can be dormant. So when you first get infected, uh, they can, you know, enter into the skin and they can produce a rash, not always. Sometimes it is a typical bullseye rash, sometimes it's not. And in Bartonella, you may or may not get a rash. But then once they go beyond the skin, they can enter the blood, they can disseminate into different tissues. You know, the Lyme likes to use the central nervous system, the joints, the heart. But once you get into tissues, uh, this is true for both Lyme and Bartonella, they can just stay dormant. And I think they look for an opportunity of the immune system to wane. And once the immune system takes a hit from something else that uh, often in the history, it'll be like, oh, I got a gastroenteritis or, you know, something completely unrelated. And suddenly the patient gets really sick. And when you test them, you're now starting to see uh, Lyme or Bartonella. And I think it's basically a dormant infection that saw the opportunity to now start to multiply and trigger inflammation. I don't think most patients who present with this Lyme and Bartonella, except for a small subset that we're actually able to hear it in the history or test them and, and find that they're in their acute phase. Most patients have probably been infected years ago and they're just staying dormant until the body takes a hit from something else. And then the immune system starts to wane and these very dormant infections start to multiply and trigger inflammation. Interesting. And so that's how, you know, I have many patients who say, oh, I grew up in Montana. I was covered in ticks as a kid. Every night we would pull off six, seven, eight, and that went on every summer for 10 years. Um, but I was fine until I traveled abroad and had a diarrheal illness at the age of 29. And now I'm sick. Yeah. And also, I feel for that there must be a huge chunk of the population who are exposed to Lyme. And, you know, if you go into uh, more developing countries, Bartonella is extremely common. There, there's animals everywhere. And, you know, being bitten by fleas, it's, it's probably really not a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, but not everybody is getting sick with them. So there are people who are living their entire life and are coexisting with these pathogens, probably dormant in the tissues, and it's never going to trigger inflammation. Mm -hmm. So I do think the exposure to these diseases is quite broad, and it is only the vulnerable at some point in their life for some other reasons get triggered by their immune system, and then these infections start to clinically present into a chronic persistent form. And so then if that's the case, if the issue is really that a person lived happily with this pathogen for maybe even decades, and then the immune system takes the hit. How do you address, as we kind of shift our conversation towards treatment, how do you addressing the immune system or the vulnerabilities or weakness of the immune system versus the presence of the infection? So that's that's a great <laughs> question, Jillian. <laughs> I wish we, I had the answer. Um, clearly, you know, it is very difficult to tease out uh, in a chronic complex patient what role is infection playing versus what role is the immune system playing and what other triggers are there. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we have to recognize is that for um, Lyme and Bartonella, et cetera, related infections, our testing is so poor. Mm -hmm. So even if there's a positive antibody result, it does not help us know if the infection is active in this patient or not. Mm -hmm. And I often give an analogy to patients where I say, you know, it's, it's as if your house is on fire. And the question is, did Lyme set the trigger off for the fire? And or is it still actively fueling the fire? Because if it's still actively fueling the fire, then the approach to treating it with herbs, antibiotics is going to be very useful. Versus if it was just the trigger and it's not currently triggering the inflammation, it's mm -hmm. not going to be an effective treatment or it maybe it should not be approached at this time. And often, you know, you'll see two patients, uh, which I'm sure, you know, you're very familiar with, you'll see them and on paper, they look so similar, their history, their testing. And then one patient will respond beautifully to antibiotics and one patient, it makes no difference. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So really tricky to try and figure out if the infection is still currently triggering the patient. And there's the Lyme docs who, you know, are only doing the antibiotics or herbs. And then there's mold docs, you know, who are all about the mold and solely focusing their attention on that. And then there's the MCAS docs who don't do any antibiotics at all. But I think that this is a spot where you have to constantly reassess and constantly toggle between different treatments and uh, sometimes get the immune system to calm down and maybe concentrate on the mast cells and then maybe switch gears back and forth depending on Mm -hmm. how the patient's responding and also what the history and testing is showing. Any tips or pearls about how to distinguish if you are a patient that should be treated for Lyme versus if you're a patient that should be treated for immune vulnerability or immune targeting, immune strengthening or immune modulation? So in general, when I get a history of a patient who is, was relatively well, and if you go back into their history, into your previous years, it was not, you don't hear a lot of illness, and then they kind of just fall off the cliff. And it could have been a year or two, three years ago, but that falling off the cliff to me uh, really suggests that something really shifted in their body. And for those patients, uh, recognizing how our testing is so limited, just like good medical practice, that we must consider pathogens and we must understand that our ability to detect pathogens is limited. And we should, should try an empiric antibiotic course, whether we can prove it or not, because our testing is limited. Mm-hmm. So for those type of patients that come uh, relatively earlier on in the illness and we're mm-hmm. relatively healthy and fall off a cliff, I will always, usually always give them a course, a, a pretty decent course of antibiotics to see their response. For patients who've been chronically ill for many, many years, even if they test very positive, I feel like their body is probably going through so much uh, chronic persistent inflammatory changes that coming in with antibiotics directly may not be easy for them to handle, or it may not even produce the response. So for those type of patients who've been ill for many years, even if I test them and it's pretty positive, I will still hold off. I'll try and get their inflammation down. I'll try to repair their gut, get their SIBO Mm -hmm. taken care of, try and get them out of a moldy environment if they are in a moldy environment, get their mast cells to calm down, And then depending on where they land, because a lot of times, you know, you do all of that and they're better. And so then at that point, even if I see all the antibodies for Lyme, or if I see that they're testing positive for infection, maybe their immune system is taking care of it. And if they're better, I wouldn't necessarily treat them um, at that point. But I, if they're chronically ill, I usually will try to do more supportive work first and then say, now we're ready for antibiotics or now we're ready for herbs, but a little bit later in their time frame. So can you talk a little bit about also when in investigating a chronically ill patient, you might also consider mold, heavy metals, or other toxins like herbicides or pesticides as or pollution as triggers for immune dysfunction? Yeah, so uh, mold, as you know, is, is very tricky. It's ubiquitous in our environment. We have so much mold from the way we now live in 2021 and the way we build our buildings. And mold has a lot of research to support that it is quite immunogenic and it can be triggering inflammation. Um, Our testing for urinary mycotoxins is again, maybe as controversial or more controversial compared to tick-borne disease testing in terms of whether when you find the mycotoxins, does it mean that it's triggering the illness or not? But in general, mold toxins are immunogenic. And so I think it's good to test everybody for mold mycotoxins. And then Mm -hmm. if you find it, um, you know, detoxing patients from mold mycotoxin is really just uh, a lot of different supplements and maybe some mild binders. It's a relatively easy pathway. It becomes a little bit more trickier if you don't know where the mold is coming from Mm -hmm. and whether they're still actively being exposed to it. So I definitely check for urinary mycotoxins for everyone, but I don't necessarily make them move from their house or remediate their house unless I'm sure that it's really playing a huge role. And of course, like the history sometimes helps, you know, I moved into my house a year ago and now I'm so ill. Well, then, you know, that clearly the the house must be playing a role. And in terms of other um, heavy metals and pesticides and so forth, 
uh, I mean, when we read the research, it's very depressing in the sense of how much we are all exposed. Mm -hmm. And to me, I don't always test everyone because I feel like my treatment approach for anybody who's chronically ill is to try and get them to detox more, drink lots of fluid so that they can urinate more, that make them sweat more. Mm-hmm. You know, use infrared saunas and just assuming and get them to have normal bowel movements and frequent bowel movements. So the generalized detox approach is going to be the same, uh, whether I find these toxins or not. And I'm just going to assume that anybody who's chronically ill is having a harder time detoxing from our environment than somebody who's not ill. And we use, you know, Ayurvedic Panchakarma and other Ayurvedic pro- processes for detox as well. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to learn some more of that too. Oh yeah, come 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 over, <laughs> come see us. <laughs> you will. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about what Lyme disease looks like, just to touch on, and before we go into treatments, to touch on the MECFS component of this. Lyme disease, in terms of uh, how we can present, you know, you have your very classic Lyme, you know, quote unquote, where you get the bullseye rash. If you get the arthritis, you know, generally, if you get the arthritis, and if it's like different joints at different times, and they're the big joints, that's really, you know, it is a signal that this this could really be Lyme, and then they love to go into the nervous system, and they love to go into the heart and so forth. But in terms of it's a multi-system inflammatory disease. And so clinically speaking, besides these few things in your history that might really point towards it, you know, including, of course, a tick bite or what I just mentioned, it is really hard to distinguish whether all of that is coming from, let's say, dysautonomia with autoimmunity. The symptoms can be very hard to figure out whether it's making Lyme as a more higher suspicion versus mm-hmm. is it dysautonomia and POTS um, versus is it all mold? And that's because all of these illnesses cause a chronic, or is it CCI for that matter? And they all cause a chronic multi-system inflammatory disease where the symptom list can be 200 long. Yes. And I don't think it's specific for one particular illness outside of a, fo- a few small things for each of these. Most of the time it's interchangeable. And this is such a complex topic, and I appreciate so much your insight and clarity. It's great. If we are thinking about now Lyme disease or co-infections, multi-system chronic illness, if we think about Lyme as a source, then how do we approach and start to think about treatment? Let's say we've gotten it, we've decided on this diagnosis, we've looked at PCR testing, Um, We've looked at the immune system, we've looked at the clinical history, we've looked at the current symptoms, and we've decided this is a Lyme case, we want to give it a shot, what do we do next? Once we've come to the conclusion that we're going to try and treat and see if um, this is what's making the patient ill, in terms of, you know, all the infections that we find, if we find Babesia, we do need to approach the treatment first for Babesia. And the treatment for Babesia is a little bit more unique compared to everything else, Mm -hmm. because it does require some antiparasitic drugs to be added to antibiotics. So usually you want to start with a Babesia treatment, depending on the response, you know, you could use it. Usually I always give it for two months, but we could even go longer based on how the patient is responding. And once you feel like you've treated Babesia to some extent adequately, you can always recheck the FISH test. You can recheck the antibody levels to see if they've come down and of course, clinically see how the patient's responding. Then uh, you can start going into antibiotics. And in terms of antibiotics, I... Ehrlichia, anaplasma, you know, docs, the tetracyclines are very good for them. So I usually will start with a regimen that will initially include some tetracycline, whether it's doxy or aminocycline, and combine it with a few other antibiotics. And so I usually will use two or three different antibiotics that have good intracellular, good tissue penetration. And so tetracyclines are one of my favorites. I also like clarithromycin, mm-hmm. azithromycin a lot. And rifampin is great. It's, you know, it's like a godsend in terms of how well patients respond to rifampin. And then based on how the patient's doing, if these antibiotics are not doing the job, then I will try to switch to different antibiotics or otherwise just switch periodically anyways to see unless the regimen is producing really great results. I tend to switch after some time and maybe we can use third generation cephalosporins, uh, you know, Bactrim, 
And then there's, you know, what I would say, like the third line regimens, uh, but they're, when you're very convinced a patient is infected and they're not responding or they're only partially responding, then um, I definitely will sometimes use a dapsone-based regimen, which is based on a lot of off of Horowitz's work, mm-hmm. and also diselfram, which now, you know, a few years into it, we do know that it can be a very effective drug. But those are regimens that I would only go to when I'm really convinced that this patient needs to be treated more and have, has not responded enough with the initial regimens. Mm-hmm. And we're constantly reassessing for response. We're looking for either the patient to be herxing or the patient to be getting better. And initially the patient can herx quite severely and for quite some time that it can take up to uh, four to five, you know, quite a few months before the patient starts to turn around. So I usually have like about a three to five month mark where it's like, well, we, if you really haven't herxed and you're really not improving, I know the test results really show that this is what's going on, but I don't really know whether it makes sense to continue on the antibiotic pathway at that point. So that is usually my uh, time frame of when I really start to think hard whether we want to keep going or not. And at that point, we've already tried a few different regimens. You know, we've tried different approaches, and if there really is not a shift, I start. We start to discuss again. And while we're treating with antibiotics, I use a lot of supportive supplements. We need to know that all antibiotics increase our risk to C. diff. So a lot of probiotics, you know, curcumin is very good in preventing C. diff also. So definitely curcumin supplements and in the food, if they're, you know, that's their taste and they can, uh, if they can consume it that way alongside uh, a lot of detox uh, support. So N-acetylcysteine, liposomal glutathione alpha lipoic acid. And then also we want to try and give some biofilm supplements, you know, biocidin, um, enzymes like lumbrokinase or peptidase, stevia. And I feel like adding in all the supportive supplements with the antibiotic is usually a much more helpful strategy. And then there's herbs. And so I really like Buner's herbal protocol. I mm-hmm. read a few of his books. You know, he publishes a lot of the research for the herbs that he recommends. So sometimes I'll start off with herbs if I think the patient's too sick and they can't, they won't be able to tolerate antibiotics. Or sometimes I'll trail off with herbs if I only see partial response to antibiotics. And I say, okay. And sometimes, you know, the results can be really great with herbs. And there are some patients whose preference is herbs. And, you know, that's great too. And so I just start off with herbs and we keep going. And there's so many, uh, so many herbal protocols, but I tend to use Buner's a little bit more compared to the other ones. If people aren't tolerating, how do you tell the difference between a Herxheimer? And can you talk a little bit about what that means? And- yeah. So, Herxheimer is, uh, it comes a short word that we're using, or Herx is basically a Jarish Herxheimer reaction that was seen uh, or described in patients uh, with syphilis who get antibiotics and they have a huge bacterial load and the humongous bacterial load dies off very quickly. And so there is a very strong immune response that essentially presents with this uh, clinical scenario that was coined the term uh Herxheimer reaction. So in Lyme, we we loosely use it for describing that when the bacteria is killed by the antibiotics, that the immune system then tries to get rid of all these uh, bacterial toxins that are left over. And so you, in the short term, get a flare of the entire illness because when we're exposed to a pathogen, you know, it's not the pathogen directly that makes us feel all the symptoms, it's our immune response to it. So for example, the flu virus, it's not the flu virus directly that will create the symptoms of fever, it's our immune response to the flu that creates the symptom of the fever. So similarly in Lyme, uh, most of our symptoms are based upon our immune system response to it. So when we kill the bacteria, temporarily the immune system flares because the bacteria are dying and the entire illness is amplified. And so Herxheimer reaction typically looks like all the underlying symptoms that the patient had, it just got way worse. Mm-hmm. And the, the way to try and tease out, is it a Herxheimer reaction or is it a side effect of the antibiotics? So I usually will say, you know, even if it's like a, you know, joint pain, it's going to feel very similar in quality to what the patient already had. If something feels very different or it's a brand new symptom, then we have to make sure that it's not a side effect of the antibiotic. And Typically, when the patient herxes, it 
initially the first herx will be the biggest because that's when your bacterial load is the largest and the immune flare will be the largest. And that usually will occur within a few weeks of starting antibiotics. And if you are able to conclusively prove the time of uh, when the first herx was, that can be used as a timing to try and figure out how long to treat the patient also. And typically, if you treat about six months from that first big herx, that tends to be uh, a good time frame to decide whether when you want to stop your antibiotics. How long do people typically stay on antibiotics? And is there a time period that is too long? There is always that question of if you're treating and is it really not, are you not getting the response that you're hoping for? Is Mm -hmm. the bacteria not dying? And at that point, when do we stop? So for me, if there's a big herx and the patient is continuing to get better, usually from the big herx, I'll go about six months. If the patient is, their graph is looking like they're improving month after month after month, I'll wait for them to plateau. And once they plateau, then I'll usually go on for about two more months. Um, and then I'll stop antibiotics. Um, if the patient's really, you know, they've proved, they only improve, let's say, you know, 20, 30%, and now they're not getting any better. And you're still kind of wondering, you know, how long should I treat? Should I change regimens and so forth? If the initial response was, you know, in my mind, maybe whatever benefit we were going to get with antibiotics, uh, once the patient is plateauing, we have to probably understand that that's the rest is maybe the other symptoms are not being triggered by active infection anymore. Mm. It's being triggered by the immune system and we should probably stop. Mm -hmm. So once the patient's improved to the peak extent and I tried a few different regimens, usually about two months and I will then say no more. Or I'll trail with herbs. And sometimes that will give another added benefit. We have patients that come to us who have been on even IV antibiotics for four years, five years. What are your thoughts about that? I often also will see patients who've been on antibiotics or who have been on antibiotics for years. And sometimes they still come on antibiotics and sometimes they're off it for a few years. You know, there are, there's a subset of patients who recognize that they relapse very easily mm-hmm. and they need to be uh, treated intermittently with antibiotics, you know, every few months or so. And those patients really know their body, they really know their symptoms, and they've been dealing with the chronic persistent infection for years. And so I also feel there is a role for some small subset of patients to periodically retreat because they relapse and their immune system for some reason is just not able to help them get rid of the infection or calm it down enough. But at some point, and usually for me, it's about three to five months of no response of antibiotics. I, even if the testing is very strong, I stop. And what I tell patients is that, you know, currently the testing doesn't really help us know whether it's triggering your inflammation or not. And we are giving you the best treatment we can, and it's not making any difference. And there's no way for us to know whether you're in that tiny subset that would respond after a year. So on a risk-benefit ratio, for now, I would say, let's stop. Let's try to readdress other ways to treat you. And then in a few years, maybe we will have better testing and we might have better insight. And I also think that in, in a few years for patients who are, you know, are young and have been infected for so long, I often tell them that there's a lot of research right now going into targeted therapy. And us not being able to get to the antibiotics to the right spot is a huge reason of why we probably can't treat these patients. And so that's going to change in the future. And then our therapies will be so much better. What if you can't cure it? What do you do? The immune system and the pathogen, uh, they're, you know, it's part of a spectrum of what we live with as humans. And if the immune system is not re- responding with a targeted acute response, uh, mast cells and other immune cells, and they're getting chronically triggered, and if we're not being able to get rid of the pathogen, and it's leading to this chronic inflammatory state causing so many symptoms, I think the approach is try to get rid of the inflammation. So calm down the immune system and specifically trying uh, mast cell treatment, and also looking at, uh, you know, as we're learning more and more about CCI, uh, trying to make sure that, you know, not everybody has CCI, but trying to make sure that their brain, spinal cord are up. And so CCI being craniocervical instability, so kind of how where your head attaches to your neck and your body being unstable. 
Yeah. So, and as, as you know, as an Ayurvedic practitioner, that so much is centered in about how uh, we align our body. And so trying to make sure that their posture is improving, their connective tissue is getting stronger, that we're upregulating their vagus nerve. We're le- using other techniques to calm down their limbic system. Alongside, we're trying to get their mast cells to calm down, take them out of their toxin environment, try to detox them. But at at some point, you know, trying to kill the bacteria or the virus uh, may not be the approach that's going to work. And then just trying to get their body to calm down from all these other perspectives can be a helpful strategy. So let's say that you are a listener out there in podcast land and you have heard this show today and you're like on the edge of your seat still with a thousand questions. Where would such a person go to learn some more? So I think uh, in terms of uh, Lyme disease, I love Horowitz's books. Um, he's a really great practitioner, a brilliant uh, clinician and scientist both. And he's written a couple of books and he has some really detailed regimens with really detailed strategies. Uh, and I would highly recommend uh, reading Horowitz's books. For herbal stuff, you know, I love Buner's books. Uh, he has a couple of published books out there. Um, and then for mast cell activation syndrome and so forth, you know, Dr. Afrin's book uh, is great. Uh, it has a lot of, again, details of strategies of, you know, how to approach the treatment and so forth. It is a complicated situation with so many different uh, thoughts and you'll hear a lot of different approaches. And I would say, yeah, listen to Jillian's podcast. She has <laughs> such great talks on there. You can you can learn worth a lifetime just from her oh, podcast alone. You're so sweet. I know. Well, we're so glad to have you as a guest today. My God. And we should have you back at some point and just dive in even deeper because this is certainly a topic that is really complicated that people have a lot of feelings about. So, you know, the different associations for Lyme treatment, infectious disease associations. And, you know, I've had long-term experience referring patients to the local infectious disease teams around Seattle, even at the very well-known major institutions who say we don't treat chronic persistent Lyme. So just flat out, you know, when patients call to schedule an appointment. So there's a lot of big feelings about whether it should be treated, whether this is a thing. And it's so great to have you on today talking about everything you know and how you practice and what your experience is. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jillian. I really enjoyed being here. Thank you for listening today with Dr. Bella Cheda from centerforcomplexdiseases.com. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more about Dr. Cheda at her website I just named, Center for Complex Diseases with the S.com, or about us at our website, centerforhealingneurology.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends, and we welcome your rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to send topic requests to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today to discuss how to make our whole world medicine. We rise or fall together, and we are committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Party Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.